The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools, an investor seeking promising ag tech startups, or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. Failure is not something bad. It's got this bad connotation of, I failed, it's over, you know, that's a big F, it's bad. That's not the way that life is. Every time you fail, if you see it as a learning opportunity, you can grow. You have just went down one of the million paths and you know that path is incorrect. Now there's one path less. And every time you fail, that's one path less that you have to explore and more time that you can spend going down the right way. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast Season 8 has kicked off. Regular listeners, welcome back. I'm so happy that you invest an hour of your time, or maybe if you're listening at 1.5x, that would be 0.75 if I have the calculation correct, 0.75 or three quarters of an hour. <laughs> Thanks so much, regular speed listeners and fast speed listeners. If you are a new listener, then regardless of the speed you listen at, thank you so much for checking out the show and giving it a shot. It's one of the most amazing things I've started. It's been three years that the show has been started in 2020. I can't believe we are at three years. We're at 90 plus episodes closing in on 100. It's been an amazing, amazing ride, which shows no sign of slowing down. So regardless of who you are, this is the show where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. And my name is Harry Duran, and I'm your host. In case you missed the kickoff to season eight last week, we had a great conversation with Sonia Lowe, the CEO of Unfold. She shared her insights on the latest developments in indoor farming, the role of genetics in improving crop yield and taste. And we also talked about the importance of profitability for the industry's scalability and the potential of next-gen agriculture. She has an amazing, varied background in law, management, consulting, investment banking, a little bit of martial arts as well. And she provides a unique perspective on entrepreneurship and investment in the ag tech industry. Please check that out if you haven't done so already. You'll definitely be inspired by her passion, not only for the industry, but for delicious food and diversity in the investment process, which is important. This week, we have a round three visit from Eric Levesque, 
CEO of Cultivated, also the sponsor for this season and many past seasons of the show. I can't say enough good things about the relationship I've built with the team and specifically with Eric. We've been on a couple of trips together and it's been really a fun experience to just learn more about him, about the team. And I was really excited to have him on to get a little bit more personal than we've heard in the past. And so we hear a bit about his journey and we dive into his history with gaming, professional poker, and all the twists and turns that have led him to this wonderful world that we all love, vertical farming. He emphasizes the importance of hyperlocal food, why he's excited about crops like mushrooms that will be playing a growing importance in the future of indoor farming. And Eric also highlights the significance of reflecting on our own goals and values, pivoting business models, and also building a culture that values respect and flexibility. Eric has spoken previously about Cultivated's unorthodox hiring process, but for him, what's more important is the emphasis on creating a culture of respect and flexibility. And I believe that's what's made Cultivated a leader in sustainable and innovative business practices in the ag tech world. Remember, if you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed past episodes, please leave a rating and a review. It's super easy. It'll take you all of about four and a half minutes. Yes, I've timed it. You can go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. Really easy URL to remember. And I'll be more than happy to read yours out next episode. I also wanted to mention that we have a community now available. Head on over to the LinkedIn company page and search for, you guessed it, vertical farming community. We've had some folks join recently, and I'm looking to provide that as a free resource to anyone, not only in the industry, but those who are learning about it and are looking to make a career shift as well. So check that out, vertical farming community on LinkedIn. Okay, before we jump into this uninterrupted conversation with Eric, here are a few words from the amazing folks that support this show. This year, Vertifarm takes place from September 26th through September 28th at the Exhibition Center in Dortmund, Germany. For those new to Vertifarm, it's the most significant trade fair for next-level farming and new food systems. Their international platform is set to showcase the latest developments in innovative controlled production systems for vegetables, salad crops, herbs, and microgreens, as well as sustainable fish, insect breeding, fruit cultivation, and medicinal plants. Vertifarm is shaping the future of vertical farming and new food systems. Reserve your ticket and learn more at vertifarm.de. That's V-E-R-T-I-F-A-R-M dot D-E. This year, Indoor Ag Tech is coming to New York City's Times Square, and it's bringing together the world's leading growers, retailers, tech providers, seed companies, and investors. Join us from June 29th to June 30th to meet, expand networks, and produce fruitful partnerships. The team has been gracious enough to provide listeners of this show with an additional 10% off of the registration. Simply use promo code VFP when you register and lock that in. And by the way, if you're on the fence, remember that early bird discount ends on May 11th. After a pivotal year for CEA, the summit will explore what's needed to ensure the industry can continue innovating and growing into a crucial part of the global agri-food supply chain. What brand is that? It's a Steel Series. That's the manufacturer? Yeah, it's like a gaming brand. They make like keyboards and okay. everything for gaming keyboards, mice and stuff. Are you a gamer? Were you a gamer? I was a huge gamer <laughs> when I was younger. Yeah, huge, huge, huge. Came hand in hand with playing poker, I think. You know, got to burn your time when you get mad with poker you play video games when you get mad at video games you play poker <laughs> there's a there's a correlation between gaming and poker i think right yeah definitely a, the community like crosses over quite a bit what was the first game you ever played the first game i ever played 
I don't know. My parents never let me have a, <laughs> one of those consoles, even though I asked for one for Christmas pretty much every time. So I always had to stick to PC games. So I played a lot of like pretty complex real-time strategy games, and that's kind of where I started. And then that evolved into some pretty competitive nature, which then transformed into the poker career and then, you know, <laughs> a little bit of poker and, and video games on the side. Is it one of those keyboard games where just everything's with a keyboard, like at a mouse? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, yeah, that the first game I played, like your actions per minute are supposed to be like 350 to 400 per minute. So you're just lightning on the keyboard. It takes a lot of hours to get into it, but it was really cool. Were you just too early? Because now you missed... Well, you didn't miss it, but there's the whole esports wave now, which they're like making millions of dollars now. <laughs> yeah, I definitely did miss the wave. I played for some of those teams. Like a, I was a bit older. I was oh, definitely older than the crowd. Okay. But yeah, like when StarCraft II, which was like the really big game where all that started kind of happening, came out, I was much older. Like it took like 10 years before between the first game and the second one to come out. And so, yeah, I just I put in a lot of time into the second one for the first year or so, just, you know. It requires so much time and so much dedication to play that at that level that you can't really be doing anything else. And, you know, as a 25-year-old or somebody older than that, you should probably <laughs> not be spending eight hours a day playing video games. So, What is it that people, like, don't get when they're looking at it from the outside? Because it just looks like someone banging on a keyboard. They consider themselves athletes. And it's it, there's you need some endurance or something to play at that level. Like, what separates, like, the top level from the folks who are just doing it for fun? You need some insane mental endurance. You would not believe like how much focus it requires because in those games, you're playing in real time against just one other person usually. And the tiniest mistake over one second can cost you a 40-minute game and a lot of prize money. Like some of these games now, they're the top prizes for a tournament, one or $2 million. So Jeez. it's pretty shocking how much time and effort they put into it. But they train a lot. And obviously, if you're fit physically and fit mentally, it's going to help you to stay sharp. So before, I feel like gamers had this connotation of being overweight and hiding in their basement. But now they're all <laughs> in the gym pumping iron and eating super clean. And they really? have like, you know, mental health coaches and stuff. Yeah, it's pretty cool to see. That's crazy because I was gonna, that was gonna be my next question. Like, what's a workout regimen look like for an esports gamer? <laughs> they work out like similar to what an athlete would. It's it's pretty cool. And then, like, how did you ever make the transition to poker? Then, so I think when I first started, yeah, kind of a complex question, but I worked a handful of jobs. I was a teacher for a little bit. Okay, and. The nine to five, like that job was definitely not for me. I just kind of got pushed into it. Both my parents were teachers. My sisters are teachers. So it was just kind of the natural progression of, oh, I guess, you know, <laughs> should follow along in the family business. But did you study how to be an educator or educational? Yeah, exactly. I studied, I was studying to become a teacher. Okay. And so, yeah, I did that for a handful of years, just mostly supply teaching, but I just kind of go in every day. And that wasn't really the job for me. And I had done a handful of other jobs while just kind of looking to find my niche. And you work for these big corporations and you try to make an impact and it's so hard to climb the ranks. You just feel so undervalued in those big ones. And so I had played poker to kind of supplement my income on the side. And, you know, that was something that took me away. Like it took me a while to really get to where I needed to be, but it just like allowed me the freedom of having my own schedule, which is what I wanted the most, which is what I feel like most people today want is that freedom of time. But it was not the greatest lifestyle. There's a lot of ups and a lot of downs, obviously. You live a little bit like a vampire. And, you know, although it was great for me for a time, I started realizing as I got older, there's no way I can sustain this lifestyle. 
And, you know, it's not something that most people want to be involved with where it just doesn't seem like, unless you're in that little sphere, it's hard to understand, you know, just how those people live. And so that's actually how I got into vertical farming. I just was working and hanging out with the Eric Bergeron, who's my co-founder. We played soccer together for the majority of our lives. And uh, he had a little startup in the space and he was looking for basically employee number one to do their sales. And I was so burnt out from that lifestyle. I just figured I'll give this a shot. Let's see what we can come up with. And I was in love right away. Like the fact that our team was three people, four people, like I was like, okay, what I'm doing here every single day actually matters. If I don't show up, these people are going to miss me. These people are going to miss my work because I'm 25% of the team or I'm 30% of the team. So right away when I was giving him ideas, you realize in a team that small, everyone has to contribute so much that like you have to have innovative ideas. You have to push the envelope. You have to be there grinding and you know, that's what really made me fall in love like with video games, with poker, everything that I did previously, I just went all in on it and wanted to be the best at it. And I had never found that in my work life until this came about. And so it was the perfect fit for me. And then I just felt valued at work, which is something I had never felt before with these other conglomerations that I had worked for. So yeah, it really, I was hooked right away. And then I had this fortunate you know, timing of being in an industry that is absolutely <laughs> booming, working with a good team. And, and young. Yeah, exactly. Everything is going in the perfect direction. We grew so fast. We hired so many people. So it was just kind of a natural fit. And it's evolved from there over the last, you know, decade or so. Do you think it was something about, you talk about the gaming and talk about the poker. Those are mainly individual pursuits, right? Because there's no, really not a lot of team. I mean, maybe in, in e-gaming is a little bit, but you're sort of responsible for your own schedule and you maintain your own lifestyle with like, especially with, with poker. And was it something that you were missing then this connection with other humans? No, not so much. I think so. I actually, I've always kind of been like that. I've always kind of been doing my own thing a little bit solo. Even when I played sports, like I would play badminton. I did track and field. I always preferred the solo events versus the team ones. And it was just because then you, you have no one else to fault. If I win a tournament, I know I won that tournament. If I lose the tournament, it's because I did not perform the way that I should have. Yeah. And so it was really important for me when building out these teams to just make sure that I found like-minded individuals who believe in the mission, who believe in what you want to accomplish, and who are going to be on board because that friction is, is can be so detrimental to a small organization. Like I was saying, when you're five people, six people, especially in the beginning, People better be believing in what you're trying to accomplish because there are some long days and a lot of stuff going wrong and you have to be prepared every day. What was it about poker? Because we got to connect in Dubai and chat for a little bit, which, which is actually where I learned about it, which is cool because I got sucked into the Chris Moneymaker wave as well and and played and uh, we've played a couple of times. We got to play a little bit in Vegas, but there's something about the poker specifically that I love it's because you're maybe because you're playing against another human being. So it's not for me, it's not gambling. There's a lot of psychological aspects to it, which I, from playing a little bit with you, I get the sense that you enjoy that part of it as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. It, the game is definitely gambling. It's a gambling based game. Unlike every other casino game, it's certainly not the same where it's a bit closer to chess and where there is a giant skill gap that can be achieved when you study and you understand exactly how the game can be played and how the psychology can be applied. Most people don't see it that way because, you know, they've played for five bucks with their friends one time and don't really understand the rules. But when you dive into it, it's one of the most beautiful games on the planet and it's really wonderful. So I played for a long time. I played, you know, I've played pretty much 
consistently since I'm 18, less so over the last 10 years or so since I've been in business just to time and, and not needing it for income. But it has really helped me transition into business. The skills definitely apply of you know when to push and pull and how to build relationships and how to notice little micro trends and things like that. So it's something where I had a lot of anxieties leaving poker and coming into business, just feeling like maybe I didn't have the proper skills that would translate over. But it has really not been the case. You know, you have you put in a lot of super high stress situations when you gamble for a living, obviously. And so, yeah, it translated so well. It was kind of perfect timing. Like I said, it was a, it's been a perfect storm the last little bit. I think what people don't realize who don't play it on a regular level or, or have played it in person is the physical changes that happen in your body when you're in a high stress situation. We were talking about a situation recently where I was bluffing and I had a bluff on the flop and the turn in the river. So three times not having the cards at all. And my heart like was literally beating and I felt it in my chest and I'm staring at the other guy and I'm like, don't call, don't call, don't call. And it's so you know, I guess if you're, you're good enough, you can see those tells, you know, at the regular recreational level, you probably can't. But internally, it's amazing, like what physically happens to your body when you're put in that sort of that stressful situation. Yeah, it's actually really funny. Like I've played for a long time. I've coached a lot of friends. I used to have my own coaching website. And, you know, that was one of the things where you would tell these people, okay, you're getting them ready to go play their first live tournament. And they've played online so much. It's like, I'm ready. I'm like, you will be petrified when you sit at a table and you look at all these people who have been doing this for years and are so comfortable your hands will be shaking your heart will be going and they're always so confident that it won't and i guess it's kind of like me doing these podcasts half the time but uh <laughs> yeah it's you cannot believe it like your heart rate is going up to 180 when you're bluffing and you have nothing and uh you think you got they gotta be able to see this like i am sweating bullets over here yeah yeah, it's like my leg is like uh, bouncing underneath the table. And it's so funny because you can't even hide the handshaking. Like if I grab chips or I'm like going to make a bet, I, I can see my handshaking. I'm just like trying to like keep it under the table, but it's these little things. And it's not even like I'm at one, two. So it's like, you know, a couple hundred dollars. I can't even, you've played at the highest levels as well, thousands and thousands of dollars. And I guess at some point, you know, if you can handle it at the, the lower levels, it just becomes a little, a little easier, I imagine. Yeah, it, it gets to a point where you kind of lose that unless you're playing in those like really big nosebleed games. But it's so much better that way. You're so much more comfortable. There's nothing fun about bluffing and just being sweaty at the table. So that's something that goes away with time, obviously. You become an expert at anything you do if you put in enough hours. And, uh, you know, it's an expensive education. And it's, uh, you know, it's very humbling where you start to think you're good, and then you get into some higher games, and you realize, wow, I do not belong here. But it's like anything else, you know, you have to really believe in yourself. And that's one of those games where you really have to trust your kind of inner monologue and your gut, because you have to be able to think like, I put in so many hours into this craft, and I have to trust that, you know, I am good at what I'm doing and make the right decisions because especially in a game like that, when there's a lot of money at stake, people will chicken out on their decision and they say, oh my God, you know, I think I'm right, but if I am wrong, I'm going to lose so much. And then, so then they make improper plays because they're scared of the money. So yeah, it's a lot of that also has translated into business. You know, I've had swings of up and down with money and 
it's really taught me I, I've always been able to make it back. I've always trusted myself and that's what allowed me to grow so much. And in business, that's a big proponent. You're going to have to gamble once in a while. You're going to have to take risks. You know, you're going to have to hire new people. You're going to have to invest in something that where you're not sure whether it's going to go. And it's been like that for us. When we started this company and we've pivoted a handful of times, you invest a lot of money and time and every one of your staff is all chasing this one thing. And you realize halfway through, this is not it. And you have to be willing to, to just abandon and move on to the next thing, even though you've invested so much time and capital, because you realize I could keep chasing this to just not look like an idiot because I've committed. But if I go all the way down this rabbit hole, you know, you're going to burn yourself out and you know, you're going to, it's going to be detrimental to your company. So being able to let go of those things is, is monumental. I can totally see how the, the, the skills you've acquired in poker, that ability to be calm under pressure, it's needed. And a lot of people who get into business like don't have that skill set. So when they encounter that first bump, and especially as an entrepreneur, when you fall on your face the first time, or you lose thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in a deal or in a transaction or something that you thought was going to pay off for the business, it's the biggest gut punch like in the world. And, and, and physically what it does to you, it's just kind of like deflates you. And if you're not prepared mentally, a lot of people I would imagine just kind of pack up their bags and just go back to the security of like a nine to five job or something. I bet it happens all the time. And it's funny because I don't even really remember it happening in my company. And in the sense that I remember a lot of things we invested capital in that did not work out and we just kept chasing and kept working. But none of those phase me whatsoever. And that's probably because I had a decade of doing it and falling on my face in other aspects where it's just become the norm. But, you know, I'm a big proponent of failing fast, which is, you know, a pretty well taught and, and well known thing. Failure is not something bad. It's got this bad connotation of I failed, it's over, you know, that's a big F, it's bad. That's not the way that life is. Every time you fail, if you see it as a learning opportunity, you can grow. You have just went down one of the million paths and you know that path is incorrect. Now there's one path less. And every time you fail, that's one path less that you have to explore and more time that you can spend going down the right way. Do you ever continue to get imposter syndrome? I mean, I, I think I go through different phases of it. I had it in the beginning, obviously, as an entrepreneur, when I started my business, I had it when I started this podcast, like I was coming into this space and no one knew who I was. So a lot of it was just like, wow, you know, can I pull this off? And I feel like it, it happens, but at different levels with each new challenge that I take on. So definitely when I started in business, there was a time where especially at the very beginning. I just had no clue what I was doing. It was so new to me. And I was like, you know, I'm a pretty bright guy. I could fake it and we'll get there. And I just started faking it every day. And not in a bad way. I, I was just, you have to have some belief in yourself. Like, look, I, I figured out these other things that I had no clue, so I'll figure this out. And I was just faking it and faking it. And then we raised a round. Every day I'm waking up thinking I'm faking it. And then one day you wake up and you realize, I haven't been faking it. I've just been figuring it out. I've never been faking it and now I'm here. And recently, um, I had a little spell of it. I think you and I chatted about this as well, but I had a little spell where I started thinking again, like, this is spiraling so fast. This is getting so big, this company. Like, we're all over the world. I traveled to maybe 15, 20 countries last year alone, and I'm on the move. We're hiring people all the time, conferences all over the place. It's, it was strange. I was like, how did I, I don't even remember getting here. It just happened so fast. I've just, this is my life now. And it's, polar opposite of what I was doing previously. So yeah, I think 
it's a pretty normal thing. I've spoken to quite a few people about it, and it seems like you said it comes and goes in waves, but it's important to address when it happens. I think it's important to kind of be introspective and look at like, why am I feeling like this? And like, you do belong and, you know, maybe you have some stuff to figure out, but that's just all part of the process. What's interesting is I was just thinking about the show and I was like, oh, it's been a couple of years. And I'm like, no, wait a minute. It's been three years. It's been crazy. Like, I, I mean, it started in 2020 and it's this, we're in March now and it's the, the third year of starting this show. And I'm just like, you know, sometimes you're such in this like go, go, go mode that you don't have time to sit back and see what you've done. We're closing in on a hundred episodes with the show. And I'm wondering if it's what it's been like for you, because, you know, we sort of kind of we're introduced to each other around the same time with you getting started with Cultivated. And do you have the time? Do you think about like where you were, where you are now? Is it just go, go, go? Or do you make time to reflect on on how the company's grown? It's always been go, 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 but I'm pretty good at reflecting back. I think it's really important for you to just like not lose yourself in that process and to kind of reflect on what it is you're doing because your goals will change quite a bit throughout your life. And if you're not paying attention to that, I think you can get kind of lost in that rat race of you're just chasing something that never ends. And, uh, you know, it's always I'm chasing something. And then when you get that, it almost feels like you're not satisfied. And you're like, well, now I got to chase something else because I have nothing left to chase. And then you just keep making bigger and bigger goals for yourself. And that part is good because you should always be trying to better yourself and always trying to innovate and always just trying to be happier. But I'm pretty good at that now. I've taken some time and my staff is also very good at that. And once in a while, we kind of reflect on like, hey, how did we get here? Like, where do we want to go? Is this exactly the direction we want to take? Because a lot of people, like I was saying, you get kind of caught up in that in that greed and that consumer lifestyle, which is just so normal nowadays. And taking a step back and just making sure that you're on the path you want to be is, is really important. So let's take a look back, because if you think about what you had envisioned for Cultivated when you started and where you are now, like what's the team look like? How's it grown? And, you know, what have been some maybe surprises for you along the way? Yeah, we chatted about this on the last podcast as well a little bit, I think. But, you know, when you start a company, you have just it's just an idea, right? And you think this idea could become this gigantic thing if we could just if all the stars could align and so let's chase it to that and you really need an ambitious goal because if your goal is too small then it can't really turn into something special so every entrepreneur dreams so big and you know for us it was strange because it all materialized so quickly we launched and i think we raised our first round the first month that we were in operation so we literally launched with just an idea and a website and then all of a sudden We had a nice value and some money in the bank and we put it to good use right away. We got really lucky with some employees. First one actually that I hired was from your podcast, who is now our (laughs) VP of operations. She's fantastic. So shout out to thank you for that. Shout out to Erica. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, it's such a strange thing. It's moved really quickly. And that's kind of what I was saying. You got to take a step back sometimes and take a look at it. The model has changed quite a bit. This company was supposed to be just me and my co-founder. I was just talking to a friend about this. It was only ever supposed to be two of us. We were like, we don't want employees. <laughs> we don't want you know, all of this. But the idea was just too good. And we just hit such a vein in this industry. It just had to be done. And so we just didn't think about it. We just, you know, the business model pivoted and changed. And we just went with the flow. I think that's why we grew so quickly. We didn't kind of 
you know, we didn't say, oh, you know, the original plan was X, Y, and Z. And so should we do this? We just let it evolve. We let it become this living and breathing thing. And I mean, you've met most of my staff now. They're so wonderful. You know, it's, it's easy for me to sit here and take credit and say, wow, look at everything I've done. But you've met them. Like I would be nowhere without those guys. And everyone's on the same team. Everyone's on the same page. And we're battling every day and everyone helps each other. So it's so easy when you can craft a team like that around you. So I always try to emphasize when people ask me for advice in terms of starting a business, the people you surround yourself with are 100% of how you're going to get there. And even just one bad egg out of 10 or 20, like that's 5% or that's 10% of your entire staff. Plus, as soon as they start, you know, nitpicking at stuff, it can really crush that morale. So if you can keep morale really high, it's insane what a small team can accomplish in a short amount of time. Yeah, and, and kudos to you and Eric as well for building a culture of folks. And it's probably a testament to your style and hiring people who are similar to you in terms of like what you want to see happen. And I think giving them the flexibility. And, and I think I get the sense that there was no specific job description written up for any of these positions. But I think I get the sense that you hired based on fit and quickly figured out if someone was, you know, made sense for the company or not. And I, and I have had the ability to hang out with the team in, in Dubai for a couple of days. And, and I, I'm just everyone on the team. It's interesting that, that they're all like sort of marching in the same direction, but with an enthusiasm and an energy level that it's rare to see sometimes on a team. You know, there's always some folks that are not a fit, but it, it seems like so far everyone that I've met and I've got to hang out with at the conferences, it's like there's this energy about them that's really contagious. Yeah. I don't know if we've spoken about this specifically, but my hiring style is very unorthodox, and that might be because I haven't been in business. And I've also been through a bunch of interviews, and you get frustrated with the process of, you know, how did you tackle a challenge when you were <laughs> 14 years old? Yeah, yeah. You know, it just seems so redundant to me and it just didn't really seem to make sense. And so we've never really put a job posting up. We've never really hired for a specific role. We've never, you know, I don't, I'm assuming we have resumes on file, I would hope. But, you know, the way we do it is just, I'm lucky enough to have come across so many great people in this industry, people reaching out and saying, I love what you're doing. You know, I really want to participate. I want to be part of this. And then we just talk about the industry. And if it's a fit, I build a role around the person. It's a startup. They're, like I could have a hundred more employees if I could afford them. And there would be work for everybody because we're reaching out in every direction of this industry. But it's so important for people to be in a role where they not only desire that, but they they feel valued and they feel like they're doing their best work. And it's really hard for somebody to say, okay, well, I'm applying for this marketing role and marketing is not exactly what I want, but you know, I'm not sure how to get there where, look, there's so much work to go around. You can do a little bit of marketing at Cultivated and you can do a little bit of sales and you can do a little bit of something else as long as you're filling your day and you're being productive. And I think that's why the team is so happy. You know, we we don't have normal schedules. You work when you want. You work when, you know, you take as many vacation days as you like. You work in the office. You work from home. It doesn't matter as long as your work is getting done. And because of that, I feel like we get extreme productivity out of all our employees because they don't have the anxieties of thinking, oh, my God, you know, I have a dentist appointment and I got to ask for it off. You don't have to ask me. You're a normal person. You know, people want what they want. And that's just the way it needs to be. And people thrive in an environment where they just feel respected. The things that I offer to my employees is just the way that I want to be treated and the way that every time I had a position or a job, that's all I ever wanted was, you know, oh, my mother's sick. Why do I need permission to go see my mother who's sick? That's just insane to me. And so we've built it that way. 
and it really shows like you said the staff is amazing and they're all marching in the same direction and the energy is something really undeniable at this company. I think the total count so far of people that have engaged with this podcast and then connected with you <laughs> is three now. Is right? Yeah. I, well, so I, when we did the first podcast, we hired Erica, who we were saying is just the, our VP of operations now, and our head of business development, Adam Abadi. He reached out after the second podcast. So I just can't wait to see who, which my third employee will be after this. I'm going to get a, a really good one, I'm sure. <laughs> Brian, I think, told me he listened to one of the episodes as he, during the hiring process as well. So there's a connection there. <laughs> I could definitely believe it. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a great resource, uh, that's for sure. Well, after this episode, I think when people hear about the culture, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you get some more folks sliding into your DMs now on, on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? We're like, we're good with that too. You know, everyone who requests kind of an interview or, you know, we at least vet them and like if we don't have a role we keep them in a warm pool and we kind of keep those conversations going we keep those relationships because we grow quickly and we're going to need people as we go so it's been nice and this industry is for the most part really friendly and everyone cares like we're all trying to get the same thing we're all trying to heal the planet we're all trying to make a difference here so it's really easy to find people that are competent and nice to get along with and the fact that I, it's so funny because I should be using this podcast to let people know that I'm thinking about growing my team as well. And I mean, if it's working for you, I might as well be like, well, because we're look, looking to expand out to maybe possibly more shows. So if anyone is listening, then uh, maybe you can DM me and then we can figure out and we can have that success story of people that started working with me because they heard me on this show as well. <laughs> It's uh, it's pretty good. I never had expected it to to work in that fashion, but the leads that, and like the people who have reached out because they've heard me on this podcast have been fantastic. So, cannot speak highly enough uh, of the relationship you and I have had. It's been it's been worth every penny. That's for sure. So we talked about the conferences and. I can't even imagine what your account is in terms of places you've been. You talked about the different countries you've been as well. What has changed or what have you seen in terms of the industry from the time you started attending to the most recent ones you've been at? The shows have grown a lot. That is for sure. It's nice, actually. I know, you know you've you been starting to come to shows. We brought you to AgriME with us, which was fun. And you were just at Indoor AgCon with us as well. It's interesting because, you know, the news is kind of curated right now to make it seem like vertical farming is in some big downturn and everything's going by the wayside. It's important to remember this is still a new industry and, you know, the news curates in the way that it does. A negative story is a lot more appealing to the general population, unfortunately, these days than a, than a happy one. You know, every industry is going to have its growing pains and some of these larger players going by the wayside is not an indication of where this industry is going whatsoever. And, and, you know, we see that because we're in this industry and we're going to these conferences. The excitement is very real. The booths, you know, they're growing from 20 people exhibiting to 200 exhibiting in a year or two years and 500 attendees to 5,000 attendees. I mean, these are not small conferences. We're, we went to MJ in uh, Vegas, 35,000 attendees, wow. you know, uh, 2,500 exhibitors maybe. And some of these other shows like the Agrami were 5,500 people over two days. Like that show was out of this world. Some really big key players exhibiting. And like, this is not just like an abandoned hotel room. These are <laughs> massive conference centers and people are paying big bucks for tickets. And the speakers are world-class from billion dollar organizations and talking about topics that are very well needed. So it's nice to see it's still going in that positive direction and people are realizing more and more this needs to happen 10 years ago no one had a clue what we were doing we would tell them and they still 
couldn't even grasp it. And now every single person I talk to is like, oh, wow, I've heard of this. My cousin is in this or, you know, I've wanted to invest. And it's really something that we need to address. And uh, it's nice to see it trending in that direction. Do you notice anything different regionally because you've gone to conferences in different countries? Are the questions, the concerns, the needs different in different regions? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there's shows in Europe, shows in the Middle East, and shows in North America are the ones we attend the most. The shows in the Middle East definitely have a different vibe, and that's because they really are incapable of growing the majority of you know, just about anything. And so they have a big focus on animal feed, which is a big portion of this industry that is developing quickly. Obviously, the need for animal feed is even greater than the need for human food for consumption. So that side of things is becoming very important for us. But in general, everyone is just kind of going in the same direction, which is that this is a problem that needs to be addressed. And regardless of whether it's for animal feed or human feed, we are running out of water. We have run out of land. And these issues are a lot more serious than people take them currently. It's one of those things where you just kind of push it off and you're like, well, you know, I turn on the tap and water comes out. So why should I be worried right now? But that will not be the case forever, unfortunately, especially for the land and population rising. We crossed 8 billion population in uh November of last year, that population will grow to over 10 billion by 2050, which is a very short amount of time. For example, in 1960, we had only about 3 billion population. So over the last 60 years, the population has grown by 5 billion people. You know, we need to put those people somewhere. We need to feed them somehow. And we've already used all our land. We're using 70% of all fresh water on the planet currently for agriculture, for outdoor agriculture. And in the next 12 years, the need for that amount of water will grow by 50%, which is 105% if you can do the math. And I don't know if you know, but there is unfortunately not 105% water <laughs> on earth. And so these farms will become a staple, you know, we cannot go without them. These farms that reduce 90 to 95% of water, they will be encourage and incentivized in ways that we can't think of right now because we just don't have a choice. Currently, about 25% of all the people on the planet already don't have access to clean drinking water. 25% is staggering, and that's getting worse and worse. There's over 1.5 million people a year that die just due to lack of water intake every year on the planet. So these problems are huge, and they're only getting bigger. So this is something that we, you know, like I said, we, we've seen the writing on the wall for a long time and people are finally starting to adopt it. The war in Ukraine has been a huge, you know, showing of what happens to a really fragile food chain when, when an event like that happens. The COVID-19 virus really, you know, messed with supply chains and we're lucky, you know, we're the most fortunate. We live somewhere where we don't really have these problems, so we don't try to pay attention but the other places in the world who have been suffering are suffering infinitely worse right now. And if we can localize food production, we can make a real difference. And this will have to happen. And over the next 10 years, this will happen. Absolutely. And we're glad to be positioned to help. And that's kind of why we made our platform the way it is, where most of our services are free. We realize how far behind we are. And that has to change. And we want to move as quickly as possible. So it's been a nice reception, but it's still not fast enough. And, you know, everyone who's in this industry, and I think I just heard this on one of your other podcasts, but we all want the same thing. We all want to do good. We all want to to make a difference here. And 
it's nice that it's trending in the right direction, but it needs to go a lot faster. And so every time there's new companies popping up and new competition, we're just looking at it the wrong way. These are people who are helping as well. And it's going to take a combined effort of all of us to really get to where we need to be. Has the nature of the conversations or the requests in terms of the types of projects people want to start changed in those conversations with you? Yeah, they've definitely changed somewhat. We spoke about this before as well, but we used to just deploy more mom and pop shop farms where it would be a container farm or something small. And for some reason, it was almost always in a, a really small city. And I guess the reasoning for that is that they probably have to import a lot of food there. It's hard for them to get or fresh access to food because they're not local and everything has to be shipped there and they kind of have to rely on themselves. So they'll have the support of their community when they deploy that. But people are also caring a lot more over the last 10 years or so of what goes in their body. I mean, when we were kids, we never looked at the calories the ca that didn't exist. We didn't know what we were putting in their bodies. We were just, we would eat what we were served and that was kind of that. Or just the, I had colorful, it was like Lucky Charms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And no one ever told you like, this food is bad and this food is good and you have to have the right amount of protein with carbs and that's how you're going to get to where you want to be. But people really care about that now. And it's good that they care about that because we've realized we've been putting some really terrible stuff into our bodies and look at how much better you perform and how much better your mental health is and your physical health is when you eat properly and you know where your food is coming from and it's not covered in pesticides and toxins and microplastics. And that part is really important and is also helping to grow. We're hoping that in the near future, the food miles will be something that has to be attributed to food packaging because that will really push our industry forward. So there's been some talk of moving that into legislation, whether that will happen in the near future or not, I'm sure is something big, large farms don't want. But the fact of the matter is that the average produce still travels 2,200 miles to your plate. That is a shocking 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 statistic as soon as you cut the plant it starts to die the nutrients drain from it by the time the bag of lettuce gets to your table there's nothing left in there you're eating air you're eating nothing and it's something that needs to be addressed so you know that's another cool thing about this industry is that you go to the store and you buy some of this lettuce and some of this kale and you're like wow i can't believe how good this tastes it, it's not that it tastes good it just tastes like what it's supposed to taste like you're supposed to harvest it and eat it right away it's not supposed to go in a truck and travel across you know, state lines to get to you. Some of that stuff is really shocking and eye-opening. Shout out to our friend, Ali Daniali, who put me onto this book called The Secret Life of Groceries. It's one of those books that uh, I did the audiobook version of it that you don't want to listen to because it's very disturbing. It covers like the produce industry, it covers the, the shrimp industry in Thailand. And by the time you're done with the book, you almost feel like you can't eat anything <laughs> without feeling guilty about what that food has gone through. They talked about some of this, this produce that gets pulled when it's so ripe that they say the tomatoes like fall on the floor and they bounce. And they're basically create, uh, kept in this like homeostasis environment, sometimes for depending on the produce for a couple of days to a couple of weeks. And they've managed, you know, between the management of the ethylene that allows it to ripen, just controlling that specific aspect of it to the point where when it's ready to ship, then they turn it on. But what people don't know and they somehow get tricked because they see a little vine on a tomato that <laughs> indicates it's fresh, but it's not. And so I think if people understood literally what's happening and the machinations that have to happen for food to appear fresh after it's traveled 3,000 miles, I think it'd be a, a bit of a wake-up call for folks. Yeah, it's one of those things where people 
have an inkling of it, but it's one of those, it's tough to really open your eyes because then you're admitting that all the food you eat is treated that way. But food has been designed and engineered for travel, which is crazy. You know, you have companies like Unfold and some of these newer ones that do seed genetics that are working with seeds to make them have a better taste profile, a better crunch profile, better flavor, more nutrients instead of, well, I'm making this seed so that when the plant is cut, it's able to live for two weeks to get to its destination. What, what a weird concept that you know no one ever thinks about. But you're putting that in your body, and that's not what you want. And that thing's been sprayed with pesticides the entire time it was in the field until it's harvested. And you know, I'm sure you've done this the same way all of us have. You go to the store and you're doing your groceries, you buy a bag of salad mix, and you put it in your fridge and you forget about it for 48 hours, and you you pull it out and it's all wet and soaking and you're like, what's, it's already gone bad. That's because it's been in that transit period for three weeks. It should last in your fridge for a month. If you grow a head of lettuce and you cut it and you put it in your fridge, you can eat it two weeks later without any problems. But those bagged salads that turn to water after a few days, it's because they've already had that transitory period. And that's not what you want to be putting in your body. Yeah, I've been so much more conscious of it since starting this show. Shout out to Rebel Greens, who is local here in Minnesota, and they've got a greenhouse here. And I, you know, in the beginnings, I think I would just pass by it. It is a little bit more pricier, but I think it just takes a, two or three times of like trying it, even just one time of trying it. My girlfriend tried it and she's like, wow, this is amazing how fresh, how crunchy, how much more flavor it has, how much longer it lasts. And now it's just, there's no turning back. Like you can't flip over a bag of lettuce without seeing Salinas <laughs> as the origin point of it. And it's just night and day. And I think it's just a matter of educating people and getting them to try it. Because I think once they do, it's a, just a real aha moment. Yeah, I mean, it's the same for us, right? We're in Canada most of the time, and we're not growing food for at least half the year. So our stuff comes from especially far. Like it's a, we're the prime candidates of the 2200 miles to get to your plate. And, uh, it's something that I never really thought about or noticed until I got into this industry. But now every time I go to the restaurant, I order I order a salad or something. It's strange. You, I kind of nitpick at it. I'm like, oh, you can tell that this came from over here, you know. But that's not the way it should be. And then it makes you not want to eat out at restaurants, especially when you know how far they are from the source. And it's not to their fault. It's the only way that they can get lettuce is to import it from wherever or to get it at the store. But that is changing. This is a movement. And it's like you said, it's night and day. Once you have that, if you have that available to you, that it's been locally grown and you purchase it, you know, it's the same reason people love farmer's markets. You go there and you get the, your meat. You know that that meat was, you know, it's ethical and it came from around the corner. You don't have to worry about whether it was factory farmed and pumped with something. And this movement is very important because it will define the future and it's something so needed. So it's been kind of a slow burn. Even though the industry moves at a mile a minute, it's still not enough, but it, we're getting there. We're definitely getting there, and it's nice to see. I think what I also found interesting is the definition of local. I, I heard somewhere that you can call something local if it comes within 400 miles, I think, or I don't know if it's, hopefully I'm not getting it too wrong, but it wasn't like local is like a couple of miles away. It's a big, big radius. And so what I've seen more folks talk about is this idea of hyperlocal. Hyperlocal meaning 
And we just, I just had a conversation with Jonathan from Adapt Ag, and he talks about how one of the restaurants talk about their mushrooms as, I think, 500 meter mushrooms. I saw him post something about social. And, and that was a, a reference to the fact that it was grown with their partnership, like literally next door. <laughs> so you, that's really hyper local. And I think maybe it's a, it's educating. Like these labels that people see natural and local, you know, they just assume that's good. But I think when you start to dig in, I think really hyper local is where the conversation should be because that's really speaks to what we're doing i think in vertical farming yeah it's funny i was about to just uh, name drop adapt as well because i know a lot of their farms are literally 500 meters away from where they distribute those gourmet mushrooms so shout out to them because they've really been crushing it and they're addressing something too like mushrooms are a big part of the future and there's not too many people tackling that and they've been really great to work with so that's another company you should definitely check out especially if you're on that mushroom side of things they've been crushing it and they've got some really cool stuff but i wasn't aware of that description of 400 miles i mean it's silly to think 400 miles would still be considered local because it's certainly not local <laughs> but it's funny that's still more more than five times better than what we're getting right now. We're saying that sounds silly and it's five times better than what we're getting currently. So yeah, I mean, most vertical farms, you're looking at about a 25 mile radius, maybe up to 50 miles, but 50 miles is perfect. You can drive 50 miles in an hour. That's not a problem. You know, if, if I found out that my food that is in the store got there an hour ago, I'd be thrilled. Yeah, I remember probably was it the 90s when there was a big movement of farm to table like every all these new restaurants were popping up farm to table farm to table farm to table and i wonder if there's going to be a new wave in terms of restaurants like you mentioned with uh, what adapt ag is doing i don't know what the new term would be hyper local to table or something like that but just restaurants that care about the entire destination the or, yeah the, the process right it, that's becoming more of a thing. So a lot of the companies we work with right now actually have seed to harvest traceability. So a lot of them, the packaging will have like a QR code that you can scan and you can see Michael planted the seed November 2nd at 445. And then it'll show you kind of five steps. It was harvested on this day. It was shipped on this day and it was delivered. And then you see, oh, wow, it was delivered yesterday. Wow, that's amazing. How can you not buy it? Oh, it's a dollar more. That's I'll gladly pay a dollar more for something. I know exactly where it came from. I can trust the company. I can look into the company. I can vet it. And you know how fresh it's going to be. So yeah, there's a bit of a price premium here, but the price of everything has been skyrocketing. And you know, if there's some things you shouldn't cheap out on, the food that you put inside of you on a daily basis is probably one of those things. Yeah. So we've chatted a couple times. Things have changed, obviously, and it's a lot happening in this industry everything is moving pretty fast and so this might be you might have a different answer for this than the, the last time i asked you but what's a, a tough question you've had to ask yourself recently always with the good questions <laughs> what's a tough question i've had to ask myself lately we've been thinking about pivoting some of our model again and so i think it's just the tough questions you're always asking yourself tough questions when you're in business to be honest so it's hard to kind of just pick one but you know, I think you really have to be honest with yourself. We touched on this a bit earlier, but you can't be married to what you're doing. I think a lot of entrepreneurs fail because you spend so much time and effort in creating, you know, your baby and you're so happy with everything that you're doing. And it means so much to you that sometimes you realize that your company needs to go slightly a different direction or some things that you've chased, which trust me, I have done quite a few times, are not going to materialize the way that you wanted. And you just have to let them go. You have to let them go because they'll drown you if you don't. And uh, we've had a little bit of that lately in some models that we chased that we were really confident with, that we were so excited. And like, I 
dialed the whole team in and we're all chasing this thing and we're all excited and then halfway through you just think wait i just found a giant plot hole here and this is definitely not going to work and to be able to drop that as a team and pick up the new thing and all start moving towards that new thing and everyone stays positive is crucial so I don't really have a great example for you off the top of my head, but it's more of a, it's always an evolving conversation. It's always an evolving thing. And you have to take great care to be introspective, to make sure that you kind of check yourself because you can get lost, especially when you get a few wins in a row, you start feeling like you can do no wrong and, you know, everything's always sunny side up. And then when something goes wrong, you, you want to start blaming something else. It's not, it can't be me. It can't be our team. We never make mistakes. So it's really important to to just keep an eye out for that kind of stuff and be really proactive. And, and we chat with our whole staff. Everyone has an opinion that is valued equally, whether the, you're the CEO or you're the farmer or whatever. It doesn't matter. We just we want your opinion. Everyone's in there working together every day. And so everyone is valued equally. And everyone has contributed ideas in terms of strategy for our company, regardless of their position. And I think that's another reason why, you know, we are the way we are. So we are recording this end of March, 2023. What are you most excited about for the rest of this year? What are you looking forward to? We've got some stuff coming up that I can't announce just yet that okay. we're working on, but I do have some stuff we're really excited about. We're going to do a little rebrand in the near future. We've got a new website launching. Like I said, there's some new stuff that we're changing. We're going to be announcing some new services as well. We've kind of found our niche even more as we go. We've been offering kind of everything for free and casting a really wide net. And it seems like people want more specialized services. And so we've been working at developing some frameworks for that. So we'll be launching some more formalized auditing of technologies and standard operating procedure documentation that we can build out. I think it's really important for some type of compliance to start entering this industry. We obviously just saw the closures of all these big farms and it's been kind of the wild west. And that's because no one was keeping anybody accountable. We were just kind of throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. And it can't be like that anymore because this industry... You know, this downturn is actually good in the sense that we're not faking it anymore. This is real. This needs to happen. And there's going to be some more diligence. There's going to be some more compliance. People aren't just throwing money at this and hoping it works. People are paying attention now and it's got to be done right. And we're kind of going towards that direction. You know, we work with about 65 companies or so currently. And there needs to be some compliance in force in here to make sure that the people who are entering this have the best chance at success. And that was the core premise of starting this company. And that's really where we're headed. So we're doing an audit of a really large company right now. And then we've got a couple other that others that we're putting on the books. And it, I think it's really important that we kind of work together to make some type of certification or some type of documentation that shows, look, these people have been vetted and what they're promising is accurate. And so you can trust that, you know, your money is safe here and your dreams are safe here. So I think that's going to be over the next few years, a really big proponent of this industry. I'm really glad you said that because I think it's to people that are on the outside looking in, they just see like the Fast Company article about like, is this the, the hype of vertical farming over? And, and obviously anyone who's outside has probably been <laughs> sent that article by their friends and be like, Oh, I heard you're in vertical farming. Is that still a thing? You know, without knowing the specifics of what's happening. So, but I think this idea of it growing up, I just had a chat with David Farkar, this idea of crossing the chasm, you know, like all tech cycles, you know, they have their ups and downs. And I think 
weathering this dip and seeing who really has solid business practices, who really has a solid business model. Like those are the companies that are going to succeed. So I think things like these audits are going to be really good for the industry. So I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a long time coming. And, you know, that's what I was trying to allude to earlier, where the news is, is the news. And, you know, they want to make it seem like everything is on fire and the world is going to end. It's always been like that. But we live in a pretty good period of time where we all have it pretty easy for the most part. And it's important to realize that, but it's a new industry and there's going to be failures. You you can't just do it right. I mean, five years ago, this thing barely existed. And now we're competing with outdoor crop prices, which is incredible to believe. And I mean, you've seen some farms as well as I have where in the beginning you were going and it was not much in a warehouse, you know, some racks and some heads of lettuce <laughs> and they didn't look so healthy. And now you're looking at mega scale farming with full, complete robotics and automation. And what we're headed towards, it needs more investment and it, it needs some patience, but we are getting there and it's so, so, so important. So we just got to keep plugging away. But you're in this industry and you see everyone, everyone's still so excited and everyone loves what they do. And we're all moving in the right direction. And this downturn seems like negative to maybe the outside world, but to those of us who are doing it and who have been doing it right, it really hasn't been much of a bother. Yeah. Well, Eric, my friend, I thank you so much for coming on for round three. I know sometimes it's, this is something that's uh you're wondering how these are going to go, <laughs> especially with these first two, but I hopefully you felt uh, like this was a pretty good experience. I'm always happy to tell your story because I think you guys are doing great things and uh, I want people, more people to learn about what's going on with Cultivated. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the more we get to know each other, the easier this becomes for me. And I like how you just tricked me into just recording the second <laughs> I jumped on here without saying anything. So that's definitely a bonus for me. I appreciate you, you know, taking the time and, uh, We'll be looking forward to round four next year. Yeah. Well, appreciate the partnership with the podcast. I, I'm just uh, really grateful for everything we've, we've been working on together. Cultivated.com. I think uh, you'd have to be hiding under a rock if you don't know all the details <laughs> about where to find more information about Cultivated. But as always, we'll make sure all those links are in the show notes. So thanks again for taking the time to come on and, and, and giving us an update. Thank you. Thanks again to Eric and returning to the show for round three to share a little bit more about his story that we hadn't heard before and also about the great work that Cultivated is doing. As always, the full show notes with summaries, key takeaways, shareable quotes, and resources mentioned are available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. Thanks again to our season eight title sponsor, Cultivated. If you are looking into a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at cultivated.com and that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Just leave out that last E. Podcast production marketing provided by Fullcast. Learn more at fullcast.co. As a reminder, if you enjoyed this show or past episodes, Please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFB. Come on, I know you want to hear you get a shout out on the next episode to do that. Tune in next week for my conversation with yet another fascinating leader from the world of vertical farming. This time it's Daphne Prius, CEO of Carbon Book. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.